Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing, where we bring on guests and we talk about this beautiful city we call Long Beach. And now, here's your host, motivational coach, Paul Fortune. Welcome to It's a Long Beach Thing. Be sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, it's on there. Subscribe to it and subscribe to our Facebook group to get our upcoming content. We have a great show today. We have Trent Rison with us today. Trent, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Paul. Right on, right on. Well, when I started this this podcast, it's a Long Beach thing. I had kind of a list of people that I, I had in my head that I really wanted on this show. And, and you were one of the people on this list because of your leadership in Long Beach. I was like, I, I got to get somebody like Trent on the show because his love for Long Beach is, is shown in his in his work with the with the Boys and Girls Club, with his with his work he does professionally and um, and living here in Long Beach. That must be a huge list for me to be on it. So <laughs> I appreciate that you finally got to me on there. Right on, right on, right on. So let's dive in here. What is your relationship with Long Beach? You know, uniquely enough, I, I was born in, in Long Beach, went to, went to St. Barnabas kind of to get started. And um, parents went through a pretty tough divorce when I was six. Uh, at the same time, they were starting to do busing in Long Beach, a program my mom was not a big fan of. Um, she'd grown up, went to Poly, dad went to Poly. And so she moved us to Newport Beach. So we kind of got plucked out of uh, Long Beach, went to Newport. Dad lived on the peninsula. So um, kind of did the every other weekend thing growing up, but kind of born in Long Beach, grew up in Newport um, every other weekend here. And then after college, I came back here, um, spent a couple of years doing investment banking up in the Barrier, trying to make the Olympic team in 2000 for track and field failed, which was a good thing ultimately, but, uh, ended up here in 2001, um, and, uh, had a baby, uh, bought our first house on six in Euclid and been here ever since. Awesome. St. Barnabas. I went to uh, Goretti. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were a little bit of rivals <laughs> <laughs> back then. I didn't even know. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so your sport was uh, track and field. What was your events? Uh, so, uh, obviously high school mile, two mile, uh, then got into college and because probably growing up playing soccer and doing all the other sports, got into the steeplechase, which they don't have in high school in California, but, um, have it as a college sport. And kind of that, that became my, my sport became a school record holder at Santa Barbara, then ran for Nike for about three years, uh, doing that. So you're in, you're at Santa Barbara, so you're feeling good training a lot. You have big aspirations to make the USA Olympic team. Talk, talk, talk us through that on um, um, what preparation you needed and the, that mindset, because that's a lofty goal. And I love it that you went for it. Yeah. You know, anytime I tell somebody I went to Santa Barbara, they, they think party school, which is the, the first thought, but the reality is I, I probably didn't party uh, that nearly as much as anybody else there, but went to Santa Barbara and, um, and just kind of got a little bit more serious about running every single year. You know, my, Freshman, sophomore year, I was probably a little bit overly confident and uh, and took took a good beating running Division One, and then um, 
I actually about my junior year, I had a big breakthrough. I, uh, I trained really hard that summer, came out, had a big breakthrough and, and kind of went from, um, and the whole team was kind of like, we were this smaller division one school. And there's about five of us that all had just a big time summer commitment, came back and kind of put the school on the map. And so my junior senior year, were pretty exciting at Santa Barbara. I was president of the student athletes there too, primarily because as we started to rise through the ranks, you know, I was looking at the the UCLA's and the Stanford's and those other schools on the West coast and said, you know, here we are on this beautiful campus. Why can't we compete against them? So I, I started a student referendum there that actually convinced a, a fairly liberal school to raise their own dues so that we could fund athletic scholarships, which they said couldn't be done. But um, really for me, it was, it was, it was a, it was a number game. I figured out that if every athlete in the school got three people to, uh, show up and vote that uh, I knew what the vote counts were or that we would go and we would make the referendum happen. So actually started that. That was a cool project my junior year. Um, and after that, like all of a sudden all these other schools started calling me and saying, Hey, can you show us how to do it? So I think uh, the whole kind of West coast athletic scenes kind of did that as well, which is a, a tough endeavor, but it was a lot of fun. Um, that was probably the most political thing I ever did or, or to start and then I uh, was captain of the track team my senior year and finished, moved to Boulder, said, I want to train with the best in the country and, and went literally, we drove out there with a buddy of mine in, a, in my car, slept in my car the first night, second night got there, picked up the phone booth, looked up uh, the number one runner in the country at that time and said, Hey, I want to come train with you. And he's like, sure, show up. And, and the next thing you know, um, we were training with the best and we were, we were, you know, the Colorado Buffaloes were a really good team. Then there was a bunch of Nike and Adidas guys. And so me and my buddy just kind of started showing up to practice and getting our butts kicked by those guys every day. And a bunch of Kenyans, it was a, it was a pretty cool experience. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First, how did you have the know the, the, the knowledge to, to get that referendum started and, and knowing there was a numbers game and knowing that if you got three athletes to have three people vote, how did you know how to do all that? Yeah, good question. You know, I just, I just started asking questions and, uh, and then I started looking at the voting and seeing how many people actually voted in elections, you know, in a college campus election. And, you know, every, when I first was asking where the money was, everybody's like, well, there's just, there's no funding, you know, we're not a private university. We don't have a big endowment like an SC or something. So the only way to do it is, is to raise the fees. And, and the only way to raise the fees is to get a vote on it. So it's, it's not, you know, that public university was pretty unique. So I just, I was curious. I was curious on how we could put ourselves on the map um, as a small school. And, uh, and that curiosity led me to kind of figure out the numbers. And um, I always figured, I always found that when I was bored or I wasn't doing enough, I, I would, I would fail more when I was really busy, I would succeed more. So at first, my coach was kind of like saying, you know, you're, you're, you're one of our leaders. Do you really want to do this? But at the same time, I find I get energy when I'm busy. You know, that quote of you want to get something done, find somebody busy and ask them to do it. And so that, that's kind of carried throughout my, my career, too, which is I thrive on doing stuff. I don't thrive very well when I'm, when I, when I'm sitting around or when I'm, when I'm waiting for things to happen. And I think it's pretty, pretty cool of you to contact one of the greatest runners in Colorado and say, Hey, can I train with you? So you, you had to have some confidence in yourself to be able to make that phone call to say, Hey, you know what? I'm at least good enough to be around you and to train with you. So where did that come from? Stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you kind of, as you're, 
as you're growing up and you look around and you look at, you know, the heroes at, at that time, Bob Kennedy, Todd Williams, um, some of those guys, uh, Adam Goucher, you, you just, you picked up a track and fields news and, and you'd get on let's run.com, which um, was just this cool, unique website. And, and you just started to figure out who was who and, and to be the best you wanted to train with the best. And um, so we just got out there and said, let's do it. And some of the guys were really awesome. Like uh, they were amazing. And there was a guy, Mark Davis there, who, who was an Olympian that, that took me in as one of his own. Then there were other guys that were just tough. They were kind of like, you know, they'd bring that East coast mentality where, you know, the, who, who the F are you and, and why are you here? I've never heard of you before. And we just proved ourselves. We hung in there, me and my, you know, my best friend and, and partner running partner at the time, Dave Colum, we just grinded it out and said, you know, we're going to, we're going to run with you till you drop us. And, and, um, it was a good, good mental thing because we literally like had mattresses on a floor. We couldn't afford anything. He was working at like the smoothie shop. I went and got a job at the bank of Boulder. And, you know, it was just one of those things where you just kind of like, eh, let's figure it out. We're young and dumb and willing to work hard. And that came to the point where you were training enough where you thought, you know what, I got a shot to make the USA team. So go into that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just, um, it was one of those things that when you're in that moment and you start to feel invincible and you know, you can train as hard as anybody, you just say, I'm going to, I'm going to go shoot my shot. And this is something I want to chase. I'm going to have one time in my life to be the very best I can be. And, and, uh, and it just seemed like the next logical thing. My dad hated it. He thought I was wasting my time. My mom, she didn't care. She was going to love me no matter what. Um, she, she just figured I was out exploring myself. My brother is a bit of a hippie. So he had been doing it for about six years at that time. So <laughs> she just thought I was following his, his footsteps. So, um, it was just something that we just said, yeah, let's go try it. Okay. And then once you got into it and, and you gave it a go, you shot your shot what all happened where it was like, okay, well, um, it didn't work out. Let's pivot. Yeah. So you know, I, I was very fortunate. Um, I went to run for the Nike farm team, which is now the Oregon project. And it was coached by a guy named Jeff Johnson. If you've ever, um, read shoe dog, Jeff Johnson was the first employee of Nike. And, um, and he was like retired. He didn't have, he could have done whatever he wanted. And, um, and Jeff, uh, you know, he coached us and, and was, amazing. And Nike was nice enough to sponsor the program. Nike didn't need to spend money, you know, with a bunch of amateur runners, but they believed in it. That was like their, their focus there. So, um, they, they funded us, they sponsored us, you know, um, paid for all our travel and clothing and all that stuff. So a little bit lucky in the fact that I got in with a really good training group, um, then kind of 2000, I'm on a training run with one of my best friends and he has a, a cardiac arrest and dies in our arms, uh, Travis Landreth out of Yukon. And that was a pretty like pivotal moment for all of us where all of a sudden we just went like, here we are, you know, thinking we're on top of the world to literally losing our best friend in our, in our arms. And, and, um, unique, uniquely enough, about three months later, my, um, my girlfriend at the time got, got pregnant and, uh, and uh, kind of a crazy story, or I guess two months later, um, we get the due date. And the due date is uh, one year after the, the day that Travis passed away. And so uh, it was kind of this crazy experience where our we decided to name our son Travis. So I have a son now named TJ. Um, and so that was, 
a unique time because you you went from losing somebody to coming back and and running another year um, and then having a, a kid and I realized it was too selfish of a lifestyle. I wasn't going to run and I was working by that time I was working with Merrill Lynch and the investment banking side too. So running a job, being a dad, there was just there was no chance I could do all those things. So um, 2001 was kind of my last season in Europe. Um, TJ came along shortly thereafter. 2000 was my last season in Europe. TJ came shortly thereafter and, uh, and just changed, changed the life. I had to go to work, um, which was good. it was, it made me like go to work earlier. I knew a lot of buddies that, you know, were right that hung around to like 40 and 35 and cause you don't peak as a runner till later, but it was just something that was part of it. So talk about that transition to, to the banking world. I know you worked a little bit, you know, as for, I don't know if it was a teller in, in Colorado or not. So you, you got a little bit of a taste in it. And I know that's what your dad did and still does. Yeah. So, so, so it, you, it was, you, you knew the language from a young age. So you start to think about, okay, I'm, I, I'm raising a family here now. So I got to think about income and raise and buying a home and that kind of thing. What made you choose that profession? Yeah. So when I was at Bank of Boulder, I was literally the guy that worked like the security deposit box for minimum wage. So I learned a little, but it was like the job. And then um, when I moved to, to Palo Alto, to the Barria and, and lived in the, the Nike house, it was kind of unique because um, my first apartment was, or my first place I had to sleep was underneath a a stairwell. So there's a, a stairwell that goes upstairs and underneath it, you know, there's always that little closet. So I had just enough room to kind of like tuck in my sheets on each side. And every morning, like 515, this huge thud would come downstairs. And, and finally, about the third day, I asked the guy, I'm like, where are you going at 515 in the morning? And he happened to be the number one shot putter in the world. So he was like a gigantic, massive guy that was going to wake me up every morning. And he said, oh, I'm going to Merrill Lynch. I got a job there. It's a cool, cool program where they they let me train and, and I'm working at Merrill Lynch. And I said, well, if you're going to wake me up every morning, you might as well get me a job there. And so <laughs> I went in for an interview and got a job there shortly thereafter. And then, um, and at that time, you know, making like 40 grand, you felt like you were, you were, you know, Nike was paying some of the expenses, but not all of it. And, uh, and, and I remember getting that job, making 40 grand and thinking I was, I was king of the world and it was awesome. And then I just, I started to try to become the best I could at that job. And so for the next three years, I, I focused on, on getting that job. And then, um, 2001, I came to work for dad, which was unique. Cause in 95, he had taken like an early retirement and I didn't realize that. So I remember growing up with him with having this big company and then it, it got real small for a while. And then I came in, I kind of looked around and said, where is everybody? I think there were like four or five employees here at the time. And didn't realize it, that they had taken some time off. And so um, it was kind of on me to, to build it back up. So I spent the next several years saying, I'm going to rebuild the company. And um, he was in the life insurance business. I wasn't going to be very good sitting in a living room selling life insurance. So I kind of pivoted our company to medical benefits, 401k, and then ultimately bought a property and casualty company too. So it was it was cool because you probably have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder of, of that second generation. I didn't just want to do what he did. I wanted to take it and grow something to another level. And so there was definitely like a, an internal desire that I wasn't just doing what he did. Well, how'd that conversation go? You're at Merrill Lynch, you're in three years. So obviously you're starting to get your feet wet and start to taste some success. Uh, did he say, Hey, you know, why don't you come work with me? Or did you say, you know what, I, I think I want to work with you, dad. Or how'd that conversation go? 
you know, my brother was working here at the time and I think his, his desire was always for us to, to build a legacy. So for me to come work for him, I think it was kind of a foregone conclusion that I was going to come at one point. Um, the fact that I was getting training in Merrill Lynch was, was a bit of a blessing. Um, but what's weird is, you know, when you're in high school and college, you don't really know what it is. You know, it's finance. You know, I, I didn't know really what life insurance was or how to sell life insurance and being 22 and trying to sell life insurance to your friends is like maybe one of the more miserable things on planet earth. So <laughs> I remember I went from making like, you know, I was probably making 50 when I left Merrill Lynch to, to my first year, he put me on full commission and I made $8,000. And so that year I had a baby, I got married and I made like $8,000. So it was a pretty big life shock. Um, and where all of a sudden you go, I better figure out a way to make this work here. And that, that was a, that was a tough year. My, I, I, my wife was working at um, Smooths for John Morris downtown catering. We were just, we we're trying to put any money we could together so that we could uh, kind of live day to day. Well, what did your dad say when you're making 8K? I mean, like, dad, what's going on? Help me. What's going on? Paul, you don't know my dad very well then. <laughs> no, <laughs> <I don't. laughs> uh, no my, it, it just, that was him. You know, he had yeah. put 40 agents through the same or 400 agents through the same thing throughout the years. You either swim or you sink. And, that's part of it. And, um, and he wasn't going to treat me any differently. In fact, I was probably gonna get treated a little tougher, which, which was good for me is, is I didn't want to be handed anything. I, I, I wanted to prove myself. I remember the employees, the older employees thinking I was just, you know, some punk kid and I probably was a bit, um, but no, he was going to be tough on me. That's, that's the way he, he was always on us as kids. He wasn't, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna make it easy on us. So when did it take, what year did it take you? When did you start feeling like, okay, you know what? I got my feet wet. Let's go. I got momentum. Where was that at? Yeah. You know, I'd say probably four years before things really started happening. It's hard because you get out and your friends are making good money, whether they're recruiters or they're school teachers or firemen or whatever they were all doing. They were all making a lot more money than I was. And, and then I had to sell too. So I had to call them and say like, buy something from me. And and that, that's not a, an easy thing to do, but, um, but it was, I knew that I knew I done again, it's one of those things where I started to do the numbers and I knew that if I, um, you know, knocked on enough doors, made enough calls it, that it was a numbers game. So I became really good at people saying no to me. Um, some people will probably laugh at that, but it's, uh, it's life is, there's a lot so much about being told no. And, and as long as you can handle being told no, and you keep going, then you're good. You know, there's a, there's a respectful part of it, but, but my dad had a couple of good quotes along the way. You know, he said, people will respect you for being persistent. If you believe in it, they're going to believe in you. And, and that was a, a pretty big thing. Cause if you're calling on somebody and you're trying to sell them crap or something you don't believe in, then you shouldn't be doing it. But I believed in what we were doing here. I believed in, in, uh, in the education component, the negotiation part of it. And I, I knew I was going to somehow find a way to be the best at it. And while you're going through this process four years in, did you start to gain uh, respect for those, some of those elderly members that were there like, oh, this punk kid. And yeah. uh, now, now, hey, I'm putting up some numbers. You know, it's crazy. So you think that it's all about technical skills. And, you know, one of the couple of the suggestions I got early on in my career were like, go join Rotary. And I remember joining Rotary. Me, Mark Bixby and Ryan Cora, I think we're like the three guys under 60 <laughs> and, uh, and you learned like these small little leadership skills and community and how to interact with the community. And I remember my first time speaking at, at Rotary I was actually introducing Brandon Hovart, another Long Beach guy. And, um, 
and I totally failed. I, I could barely talk. I was so nervous. I was looking at all these mentors of mine and, and it reminded me like it, it was another humbling lesson. Like you better learn how to get comfortable and speak on a microphone. And so um, things like Rotary, um, Boys and Girls Club board, um, I joined that and I met some of the, the most successful people in, um, in Long Beach. And then you learn how to operate on a board, how to do things. And so just kind of those little like things taught me about leadership. And then you ultimately learn that life is about leadership as much as it is about technical skills. I think so many people are like, well, I don't know that much about insurance or investments or that sort of thing. But um, it was so much was leadership doing the right thing for people doing, doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Um, those are just kind of those things that you learn through, through rotary and charity work and, and being a part of, of the community. And so then you're moving along, you're, you're in the Boys and Girls Club, the Rotary, you're starting to gain a lot more momentum. When did the conversation go with your dad going, you know what, I think you need to have a higher leadership role in, in the company? Yeah, um, good question. You know, in 2007, um, I, I bought all the shares. My brother left in 2002. He, he, he just, it wasn't his passion. Um, so 2007, it was um, I bought all the shares and it was a, a, a tough conversation in a good way. It was like, all right, it, it's time. And I, I want this to be something special. And, you know, it's fun to work with your dad and it's miserable to work with your dad. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it's a hard thing, especially when, when he has such a, a great reputation and big personality and very charismatic. Um, I was definitely more academic. Um, he can walk into a room and people want to want to do business with him because he's so likable for me. Um, it was more of, Hey, how do we, how do we improve upon what people were doing? And so I definitely was like more of the nerd of us and took more of a pragmatic approach and said, how do we make this exponentially bigger? So, um, it was a pretty different approach, but in 2007, that was, that was that time where it was like, Hey, I have a vision for the company and I don't know if I want to to share it as much, probably a little bit of selfish, but I, I knew where I wanted to take the company. I knew how we were going to get there. And so it was time for me basically to take everything I had and, and buy the company from them, which, which wasn't much at the time, but, um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of how it happened. That's kind of scary though, 2007, because right after that, there was a big crash. So the, the, your stomach must've hit bottom after that going, Oh, did I make the right move buying all these shares? And the economy is going in a weird direction. Yeah. You know, I think that was where, um, you know, it's unique because that was opportunity for me. I, I probably, those that, that know me know, like, you know, if I had a superpower, I'd be just seeing like opportunity through, through times. And so in 2008, when everybody's freaking out and people aren't calling their clients and people aren't, um, being proactive. That's where I was finding a way. So I'd say that happened all of a sudden I went, boom, now it's not comfortable for people anymore. Change is hard. Change is always hard for people to make, whether they're changing their service provider, their pool man, whatever. Nobody likes an uncomfortable conversation about, hey, I'm going to move from you to somebody else. And so in that time, I saw an opportunity and I said, let's build a better model. And we really did that. You know, the, the insurance industry was so stagnant for so long. And, and really the guys that were going into insurance industry were like the social chair at the fraternity. It was the guy that could party, that could smoke cigars or the financial advisor was the guy, the relationship guy, but they weren't the most, they weren't the most intelligent. Or the most, they weren't thinking, how can I build a better system? And so 
during that time, I was saying, and I was thinking, how do I build a better system? And we did that and we capitalized on it. And every time that there's been an issue or something that's happened, we've said, how do we do it better? I mean, even COVID was another example where we went, gosh, you know, like there's a lot of people that are freaked out. I, I don't think I missed a day of work during COVID. Like there was about five of us who were sitting in the office grinding it out all the time saying like, how do we help? How do we help these people find, you know, getting money from the government and how do we start to lead this? And so those tough times actually create opportunity. And then you, and then I read somewhere that uh, you have an involvement as a professor at Long Beach State. How'd that all come about? Again, I've kind of always been the nerd. So uh, somehow I, I, I was in good relationship from the human resource side with a guy named Doug Bender that, um, that, that we just had a good academic relationship. And he said, hey, do you want to start teaching this class? And at first it was pretty intimidating because you, because you started, it was a postgraduate program at Long Beach State. And I walked in and it was a bunch of people that had been HR for 20, 30 years, but um, I just I told them how I think HR should evolve instead of where it was, which was a very reactive approach, which is the HR person sits in their, in their office and does payroll and then, you know, takes the, the harassment complaint or whatever. And I was saying, no, um, here's a better way to do this. And it's funny if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Billions. Mm -mm, no. uh, so there's a show billions and there's a HR girl named, named Wendy. And she's like the greatest HR person because it was about human performance. And I became really passionate about if you have 10 people on one company and 10 people in another company, and you could somehow get another 20% out of the 10 people, just like in coaching or athletics or anything else, you're going to be more competitive. And so for me, I became passionate about evolving human resources into getting the most out of people versus being this reactive, let's just play it super safe everywhere. So um, that was really cool for me to teach that class because now all of a sudden I'm in with a bunch of people that know a lot more technical skills, but I, I focused on strategy and, and really became passionate about that. So I've been teaching that. I think I'm the, the longest tenured professor over there at Long Beach State. And, and that's been fun to do. It hasn't been as much fun during Zoom. You know, it'd be like <laughs> you and I right now if we're, yeah. we're sitting over a cup of coffee, it's a lot, a lot nicer, but, but that's, been, that's been a fun process to do. And then how, how has your relationship with your father evolved through all this? I'm sure, I'm sure you've gotten closer and sometimes probably not so much. How, how do you work that relationship? Because I don't think that could be easy, especially when your father has been doing it, I think since what, 1969. So yeah. he's got a way of doing things. You know, the, the pros, I had an insanely amazing mentor that I respected. You're not questioning them as you're as you're growing up. And so what he taught me about business was just time and time again, he was such a great sales trainer, if you will. Um, so my business development skills, I, I would definitely say were for him Two, He was pretty good at just saying you run it your way and, and staying out of the way and let me go play golf. Um, the hardest is, is, you know, uh, you're dealing with your dad. So you have a Monday morning quarterback, you have a you know, his famous quote that, that drives me nuts is I don't run the company, but if I did, I would do this. And like uh -oh. everybody in my company has, has heard that, you know, 50 times and you just, you just go, all right, here we go again. Um, so I think that's hard is, is when you have somebody that's constantly telling you how you could have done it better. Um, but you just, you just perform better. Like it's like, literally I, I had the confidence that I was building a better company. And I, I think we have, you know, and he gave me a great start. Um, you know, 
and I just took, took it from there, kept that chip on my shoulder and said, how do I, how do I go to the next level and how do I stay driven? Um, you know, I, there's been tough times though, you know, going through a divorce while working with your family and, uh, and probably going through a divorce because I was working too hard for the family. And, and so, you know, there's a bit of that workaholic part that I'm sure cost us, um, a bit of our relationship. So summer I had to put up with that and, you know, me working in family business and grinding away every day. And, you know, we're better for it now today, but that that's, those are some tough times, you know, that was in 2009. So you go 2007, buying the business, 2008, the world crashing in 2009, going through a divorce, which is something I swore I would never do. Um, and so, and then, and, and then focusing on building a good relationship with your ex-wife, that's not, that's not fun or easy to do, but um, it's been worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so now looking back at that situation, is there, I know there's never, there's never a full balance in any way. You can't balance yourself with work, balance yourself with family. There's no perfect uh, equation there, right? There's going to be times where you're going to put more time in your business and more time in your family. But what would you tell yourself at, at what, 22, 23 about that work-life balance going into the career world that you did? Yeah. You know, it's probably not the most popular thing, but Divorce was good for me, and it was good for me in two ways. Um, Summer was insanely good mother. I wasn't the right person for her. She, she, her husband now, Maddie, is, is the right guy for her. Um, two, it took me from maybe not coming home all the time, maybe grinding all the time, to having really quality time with my kids, coaching all their sports. Uh, when I had them, I had them. I was, I was on my own in that in that scenario. So. I became a better dad. Um, actually probably had more respect for her not being with her than being with her. And again, I know it's not a popular opinion, but it's probably the right thing for me. I, a bit of, of being on my own is, is good where I can really focus on my kids and my business. And, um, it's not all about work and I, cause I certainly have a good time. Um, but it's, but yeah, I, I think summer, well, I know she would say the same is, is like, she, she went to her destiny and, and there's something fulfilling about that as well. Like, I, I don't, I don't think I was the right guy for her ultimately. You mentioned something. It's not all about work, but if I could talk to you at your early thirties, would you, would you disagree with that statement? That, that it's not all about work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, my, my greatest telltale of success in life is Alexa and TJ. I mean, those are, that, that's what it's about now. Does that mean I should be at every soccer practice that I should be at every single choir event? Does that do? No, I think there's a little bit of that. Um, we think our kids are our focus. And so now we need a helicopter and we need to protect them through this. I think that part of that success is creating independent kids, you know, creating, you know, kids that want to go travel, that want to go be free that, um, you know, TJ is at Santa Barbara this summer and he could come home and he could live a pretty easy life, but he's doing summer school and he's training hard and he's working at the bike shop and he's ma- now managing the bike shop. And that there's something cool to that as much as I want to be selfish and be like, no, come home and live in our house and let's go paddleboarding and do all that stuff. There's a independence part of that, that I think is really cool. And I don't think he's doing it because he wants to get away from his mom or dad. I think he's doing that because he knows his best opportunity. He runs track to, to have a successful season is to be up there and training with his teammates and, and, uh, and so that's, that's something that's exciting for him. In fact, he's got a couple of buddies of his that are interning for me this summer and he's up there. So it's, um, 
that that's definitely my success is defined by by them. And then Alexa is just a totally different relationship. A, a boy and a girl are so different. And and uh, I say that the last four years is without a doubt the hardest thing I've worked on is making sure that she feels loved no matter what's going on in the day. And that's not easy because she doesn't want me around all the time. She doesn't want <laughs> the sappy stuff. She doesn't want to be with dad. Is she a teenager but, uh, too? What? Is she a teenager? She's a 16. Yeah. Oh, 12 yeah. to 16 as a female. That's a tough time. And so, and, and then being a dad where you're like, I, I've never had those emotions or at least I don't think so. Um, but those are, but she's thriving. She's, I'm so proud of her. She's the captain of poly track team this year. And she's getting like a, she got a 4.0. So she's, she's far more successful than TJ and I already. So, <laughs> you know, one thing I really uh, appreciate what you did, especially during the COVID time, you really took a leadership role in the, in the, uh, in the city of Long Beach, as far as the business community. And you took on some aspects of it that so to some of the city probably w- was not popular, but you knew in your heart that you were doing the right thing. So I appreciate that you and Ryan Cora kind of got together and really stood up for our businesses in Long Beach. Can you go through that a little bit um, um, on how that, how that came to be? Yeah, you know, I think that um, you learn and we really saw through the through um, COVID just how bad politics, you know, democracy is beautiful and wonderful, um, but it's got flaws. Capitalism is something I believe in, but it's got flaws. And so you could sit there and complain about politicians and capitalism and what's going on, or you can go, hey, we have a a really great city. We have a really great country. How do we just rise up from our own position? And like, I, I, I could complain. There's great things that Robert Garcia has done. There's terrible things that Robert Garcia has done. Um, you know, it, but for us, it was, how do we lead from within? What's our legacy? You know, um, how do we take the city? I, uh, so often my friends from Newport have said, when are you coming back? And, and I think they, they never said that more than when, um, forget the date, but when, when the night before in Santa Monica, um, it was looted. And then the next, the next day when we knew it was coming Garcia and and Luna who are both running for office as if nothing happened today said like, yeah, we're just going to let people loot our downtown and start to come this way. And, um, and actually probably the most leadership I saw that day was from Susie price. Um, you know, as they started to come down second street, she, she used her relationships at, um, as being a DA and called in Seal Beach Police. And they came in and they, they put a stop to it. And, and, and I know she took a hard time for that because they said, oh, she just protected her spot. That's what she did. She protected her constituency. And, and that's where you see in those, those hard times where leadership comes into play. And to, to watch your own city get burned down, like I remember, you know, during, during the riots and that sort of thing, like, Long Beach has come a long way. We've worked so hard to build back up from that reputation of the hip hop generation um, and, the, and the riots to, to do that. And so to see our city get looted and to watch it and to let it happen, I don't know, that, that, that's something that I, I don't know if I can ever forgive our local police chief and, and politician for. Um, but it, for me, it was, we got to rise up as a community. We have to do this on our own. Um, and we got we to gotta support our, our police. We have to support um, our children. We have to, we have to create a, a, you know, if you look at our city, safety is so critical. You know, it's Boys and Girls Club. I've, my focus on Boys and Girls Club for so long has been 
on that because the inner city youth, if you can, if you can take care of those that are the most underserved or the most have the least amount of opportunity in a community, then the whole community is going to rise together. And, and that's where I really wish we would focus more on is how do we how do we give opportunity, not give away money, this whole lottery thing of we're just going to give basic income. That's a joke to me. Like you could have one person smoking crack, getting money and another person working three jobs and not get any money. Like that's, that's politics. That's how do I get more votes? It's not reality. So how do we actually create systemic change in our city that nobody would ever want to move to Newport beach or to Texas or to Idaho or to Montana and say, let's, let's, let's take care of our city. So I think that was a long-winded answer of saying, no, we're going to stick up for our city. And if the politicians aren't going to do it, we are. Yeah, and and I think that the change. I think you you guys did make an impact. I mean, you were on um, Fox News, you were on KTLA, so uh, people were listening to you. And um, I'm I know the business community appreciated the leadership that you and Ryan did, um, and it probably in, in a in a way probably helped your business. You know, personally, with you know, you probably got people that didn't know about you and what your business was and now they do and and i'm sure that helps you in in some sort of way maybe indirectly it's of sorts yeah what i think it did the best was it put pressure on local politicians whether it created change or not it put pressure on them to start to listen to business owners in long beach start to listen to parents um, of children in long beach um i think one of the the least leadership in the country was was by Newsom, by Garcetti, um, Pierre Gascon. You're seeing what's going on there. And, and, I, and I'm a libertarian, so I'm not even on either side. I just want a better city. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't like Republicans. I don't like Democrats. I think they both pander too much to their extremes instead of listening to what most of are, which are right down the middle and say, hey, we want a healthier city. We want choices and we don't want to be told what to do. Um, that's part of what makes our country great. It's also what makes it very hard our country to just listen to, to whatever they want. And so when we were just following along whatever it was without any real evidence, um, that was hard. That was hard. And so is let, let's lead from our own positions and let's put pressure on them. Yeah, that's awesome. I know we got, we went really heavy there. So let, let's lighten it up a little bit. So yeah. you've been in Long Beach for a long, long time. What are you, what are your favorite places to eat and go and have fun? Oh, good question. Um, favorite places. Uh, so I, I think the best best food environment, hands down, is the five five five. If I could be be there, um, that's a pretty special spot. If I'm gonna have a cocktail at the end of the day, um, I don't think there's much better than Boathouse. Um, John Morris is not only does he have a great spot, but just what he's done for the city, whether it was smooths and mums back in the day to what he does, does with the big bang on the Bay. I think that you have to support those that support um, the city. Um, my favorite casual lunch spots, probably 908. I think Kieran's doing an awesome job over there. And I love that environment. Um, if I'm going to have a, a drink or a good dinner at the end of the night, it's going to be Nico's because it's walking distance. Um, so so that's, that's wonderful too. Um, but you know, I think casually, I love Riley's. Um, I love Casey Brannigan's again, two other community leaders that are in there that are, that are working hard and, 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 um, and that's been awesome too. So those are kind of probably some of my, my favorite spots throughout the city. Um, but it's, it's cool to see new businesses come in, even, even the bungalows and 
I know area restaurants coming in. And so those, those are, it's, it's fun to see those come into, come into the city as well. Right on. Talk to me about your, your podcast, Grit Rising. How'd that come about? Yeah. Uh, so not to, to name drop, but I, I actually was really lucky. I got invited as part of the community efforts to go to Richard Branson's Island in, in December and, and spend a lot of time with him um, called Forming Impact. And, uh, and I was just so inspired with who I met, how I met all these people, what they were doing in their communities or across the world. And I, I said, how do I tell this story more? And, and you come back and everybody's like, Trent, would you do this? And you're telling the story and you kind of realize that like some people want to hear it and some people don't really want to hear it. They just actually wanted to like, you know, be very surface level. So the podcast was a way for me to take the relationships I've met um, and talk about why people are doing things that are different, not just about their story, but what makes them tick. And so Grit Rising is really about how do you have two brothers, um, you know, that they go through a similar environment and all of a sudden are doing amazing things. I mean, you look at like a, a Duke Givens at Claire Care Closet and what he's doing in this city. We have the cleanest freeway in the 710 of anywhere in LA. And it's because we have a guy that I don't know, he's barely getting paid. He's paying homeless guys to pick up our freeway. Like that's mind blowing. That's another example of like what we're doing as citizens to rise up instead of the other way around. So he's not waiting on Caltrans. He's not like Caltrans. He's created a good relationship with them, but um, what makes somebody act like that? What makes somebody do that? Those types of things. And so I've had some, some great athletes. Uh, we've, we've had just good people in the community that have come on and, and it's just kind of been going and it's been fun. It's been a creative outlet like this. Like you and I normally would meet, we'd have a cup, maybe a, a drink and catch up and how are things doing, but it doesn't allow us to truly engage in terms of like, what do we need to do to, to be better, to be better fathers, to be better community leaders, to be better business people. Um, that's cool to have like real conversations. Uh, absolutely. I can totally agree with that. And, and I, I saw some of your, your podcast, uh, John Mallinger. I, I, I listened to that episode. That was very inspiring. And and you mentioned Riley's. I think he's a part of Riley's there. And then, and then I didn't, I didn't listen to, but I'm going to. Is uh, you, you did an interview with uh, Jim Edmonds, which was pretty impressive. Uh, former baseball player. I'm a big Angels fan, so I, I definitely want to listen to that one. Edmonds is a good one. You know, he's one of those guys that um, is probably one of the most hardest working guys you've ever known. But then at the after his career, he went on that Real Housewives of Orange County, and all of a sudden, you see how Hollywood manipulated like his persona. And so it was cool for me to tell that story because people don't realize what he did. I mean, how he accomplished it. And when you listen to the podcast, you'll hear it, but then versus like the appearance of him being on a few episodes of a, of a stupid Hollywood TV show. And so it was cool to be able to tell a story as a personal friend, but also to show like, even though he didn't have it easy. I mean, he blew out his arm and, and, and he was one of the best pitchers in, in, in college or high school. And then all of a sudden, he's got nothing the next day and he thinks he's going to junior college and then gets drafted. So it's, um, it's a, it's a really cool story to listen to as well in terms of just persevering and being like, whether it's showing up to Boulder and saying, I'm going to run the, with the best or him going out and, and, uh, and learning how to hit, you know, late in his career and, and all of a sudden, you know, coming in the, the Cardinals hall of fame and angels and making one of the greatest catches ever. So those are, those are cool stories that I think need to be talked about. Yeah. So what's next for Trent? Mm. You know, 
I have anxiety. My daughter's leaving in a year and a half. So I, I got a year and a half to, to really focus on, on making sure she has a, her best year and a half of her life so that one day she want to come back. Um, but I think really girl in the business, I, 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 we have a, we have just an insanely talented team right now. Um, our management team is the strongest it's ever been. Elena Ellis, Marie Dorado, Megan Christensen, Eileen, they're, uh, Brett Halista, Liz Borbin. These, this team of people is like building up others. And that's, I think that's, it's easy to be really good at what you do, but it's really hard to build up others. And, and this team we have are building up others right now. And it's, it's cool to watch. And so building the company, focusing on my daughter. Um, and then the podcast has been fun, but then continuing to put pressure on, on the city. You know, we have a, we have a really important mayoral race, I think coming up. And so supporting that the best we can. And we created, Ryan and I created the accountability pack, not to support one party or the other, totally independent to just say, Hey, th this is what's happening. Like you're not just voting because you think there's a name on the ballot. You're voting because this is what they've actually done since they've been in office or what they've done. And so we're trying to create more transparency. Um, so that people can make educated guesses. We're really trying to just get people to vote to get rid of the apathy. Um, you know, the, the voter turnout language is, is dismal. It, it's, it's insane how bad it is. So if we can get more people to say, Hey, actually, you know, my vote does matter. And, you know, there was like 80 votes that, that separated, you know, uh, one of the, the primaries. And so just get the voters out and just say, let's believe in, and let's not just go down party lines, but let's actually figure out what you believe in and what you support and what you don't. And by the way, you're not going to support everything on, on everything they have, you know, that's just, that's part of it. And so, so that we don't have, you know, these polarizing people, like one of the most mind blowing thing to me was, in the, I think it's the first or second district, we had somebody in a communist party get 8% of the vote. Like, granted, there's not a lot of votes, but think about as you and I grew up, that somebody in the communist party got 8% of the vote in Long Beach. Like, what? So that that part, um, you know, because communism is really working out well, you know, over in, in Eastern Europe right now. So it's, it's, it's just this mind-blowing concept that I think that we have to continue to educate voters on. And if uh, people want to do business with you or learn more about you, where can they do that? Brysonfinancial.com. So our website, um, you know, just real briefly, we do group medical and individual medical, 401k, health and uh, property and casualty. We bought a personal lines agency last year. Greg Pyle joined us, who was a, a, a great insurance guy in town. And so it's good to have him a part of the team, Brendan Diet on the life insurance side. And so um, we had two great acquisitions last year that just allowed for more services. So it's been fun to, to, to watch, to grow locally and to, to have, you know, the team grow and, and be a part of something larger. Awesome, Trent. It's been a pleasure talking with you, getting to know you a little bit better. And I, I wish you nothing but the best, my friend. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Right on. Till next time, it's a Long Beach thing. Thank you for tuning into It's a Long Beach Thing. Please tune in next time for another great episode. Thank you and have a good rest of your day.